I would like to welcome everyone uh, to the University of Sydney and this uh, event which is organized by the Sydney Ideas as well as the Center for Complex Systems and the Center for the Foundations of Science. So without any further ado, let me welcome Professor Kaufman. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming applause, um, Mikhail. Uh, thank you, and thanks to Ian Wilkinson, Wilkinson, with whom I am uh, pleased to be here and here in your presence. Uh, I may be the first American who stood before you since the election of Donald Trump. I'd like to just say a few words of apology. Um, the man is grotesque. He is a liar. He's a bully. He's an old fascist. He's dangerous. Um, if one is not at least significantly worried, you're wrong. There is, um, in the United States Senate and Congress, as you all know, the Republicans are in control. What can stop him in the United States now is probably the judiciary. And uh, anything that can be done to say to this man, no, is appropriate. So that's all I'll say on that topic, but it's huge. What I want to try to talk about tonight, uh, and I have only given this talk once, um, is bravely entitled Beyond Physics, the Emergence and Evolution of Life. As I dream about, there's, there's a, a matter before us which is as big a phys as physics, and I hope I can try to say it to you. So, um, one way to begin is the following. This land is covered with eucalyptus trees. You know this, but it's worth saying. A seed is in the ground, and a eucalyptus tree literally constructs itself. It's not a theory. The tree builds itself and rises up hundreds of feet high. How did that come to be in the universe? Now, also it's true that you all have hearts. I know I can't admit this when they talk about it. Ask why you have a heart. And Darwin would tell you, you have a heart because hearts pump blood, and therefore hearts are selectively advantageous in your ancestors, and therefore you have a heart. So I want to raise the question, and then I want to show you why it's an astonishing question. Why do hearts exist in the universe? Why? Well, I'm going to try to show you next the puzzle. I'm, I hope that this works. I mean, this is only the second time I do that. Um, let's start with the Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago. And let's ask the following question. Has the universe created all 110 or whatever it is, stable atoms? Yes. Now let's talk about complex molecules like proteins. So I think most of you know that a protein is linked together a set of 20 kinds of beads on a string. So a typical human protein has 200 to 300 amino acids in it. There's 20 kinds of amino acids in biological proteins. How many proteins are there 200 amino acids long that are possible? Well, it's 20 times 20 times 20 times 20, 200 times. That's 20 raised to the 200th power, which is 10 raised to the 260th power. How many particles are in the universe? About 10 to the 80th. And let's do a trivial calculation. The fastest time scale of the universe is the Planck time scale, as far as we know, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. If 10 to the 80 particles were doing nothing in parallel, 
but struggling to make proteins like food and amino acids. All would it take? So to take 10 DNA particles working in parallel in large space like separations, and the answers that would take the age of the universe raised to the 10 to the 39th power. This means something profoundly important. The universe will never make all possible complex proteins. It can't. It will make all possible complex things. So I want to talk about something that's physical. Above the level of atoms, the universe is grotesquely non-repeating. It's on a unique trajectory. The physicist phrase for that is non-erbotic. So the universe is non-erbotic, and history enters when the space of what's possible is vastly larger than what can ever happen. History enters as soon as we consider things bigger than atoms. Most complex things will not exist. The human heart does. So hearts abet the survival, so come to exist in the non-ergotic universe through the emergence and evolution of life. This becoming is a non-ergotic, therefore historical process. This is going to mean something deep. We can't do Newton on the becoming of the universe, and I'll, I'll try to say more about that next or a little bit later. So one way, and here's a phrase that I put in quotes that seems important, one way to get to exist in a non-ergotic universe, and hence this historical process, is to be a living organism. So let me tell you what a Kantian pole is. Immanuel Kant said, an organized being then has the property that the parts exist for and by means of the whole. So that's a Kantian pole. Um, I'm going to be telling you repeatedly about collectively autocatalytic sets, for example, peptides, and I'll show you that in the next slide. Let me say, you'll hear it several times. A collectively autocratic set of small proteins called peptides is a set in which one molecule catalyzes the formation of the next molecule, and the next molecule catalyzes the formation of the next molecule, until the last molecule catalyzes the formation of the first. They all collectively make one another. I'll show you one in a moment. And that's one way to get to exist. Planets exist too. Uh, and I think, I don't know how to say where planets are kind of is, but a collectively autocratic set is, and so are you. So you get to exist in the universe. And this is going to mean something physical. We exist, and so does your car. OK, so, oh gosh. Set. The function of a peptide is to catalyze the reaction making the next peptide. 
not jigging water in the beef plate. We're going to need this because um, functions are subsets of causal consequences. So what's the function of your heart? We already were there. It's the pump blood. Well, if the word function is allowable in biology, we're not going to be able to reduce biology to physics. And the reason is trivially obvious. Functions are subsets of the causal consequences of things, that which allows a collectively self-creating system to make itself. Physics cannot distinguish among the causal consequences. It has no way to pick out a subset. So if functions are legitimate, we're not going to be able to reduce biology to physics, which is going to mean that biology is beyond physics, and it's in 2D. Functions don't exist in physics, which cannot discriminate the functional subsets of causal consequences. So 2D is really where we're going to get. We will see in this presentation what gets to exist in the non-regulated universe of all the bounds, for example, in the evolving biosphere, includes ever new, unmistakable functions that embed the survival of the organisms having those functions. For example, eyes and sight. It's going to follow that biology cannot be reduced to or derived from physics. So this is the beyond physics. So here, here's a collective go I've got set. I want to thank from 25 or 30 years ago, Don Farmer and Norm Packer. We did simulations, and here's what one looks like. So uh, let me account for it for you. This is a little blank was on. Oh, hang on. Jeff pointed big screen. Oh, I pointed screen. Okay. All right. So, so here's what this is. I need to pause and make sense of this to you. There's two kinds of letters here, A's and B's. There are two kinds of amino acids, alanine and glycine. So I start with a food set, A, B, A, A, B, B, A, B, B, A. I thought that we call that the food set. They're supplied from the outside, and the system eats by eating A's and B's and A, B, A, A, B, 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 A, B, B. They keep pouring it from the outside into a pot. Then what happens is the following. I'm going to allow only two kinds of chemical reactions. A string and two strings can join together. For example, BAA and BAB can stick together to make BAABAB. I think you can all see that. That's the ligation reaction. And it can go the other way. BAABAB can break down to BAA and BAB. All that's happening in this are, first of all, a bunch of reactions. This thing is called mathematically a bipartite graph. There's two kinds of things. Circle things and dots. The circle things are molecules here. The dots are reactions. So BAA and BAB clue together in that reaction. There the substrate stemming in of the product is BAA, BAB. But of course, the reaction can go either way. So the solid lines represent reactions, and the dots the dots represent reactions. Substrates and products are given by the lines. I trust you can all see that. There's another kind of line. You see that BA has a dotted arrow that goes from a circle to a dot. That means that BA catalyzes that reaction. So what is a catalyst? It's something that speeds up a reaction. It does it by lowering the potential barrier. And the lowering the potential barrier speeds up flow towards equilibrium. So let me use a name for this. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bipartite graph because there's two kinds of things, circles and dots. And it's, I'll call it a hypergraph because I've got, I've got lines that represent reactions and dotted things going from circles to dots that represent 
uh, analyzing reactions. The name for that happens to be bipartite hypergrass. What this system does is, is a set of molecules having the property that every molecule in the set has the last step in its reaction. So here to BAB and BAA making BAA, BAB. And this molecule, AAB, AA, is the catalyst that catalyzes that reaction. Every molecule in this set has the property that a last step in its formation is catalyzed by some molecule in the set. That's the collectively autocratic set. Um, and does everybody understand this? I hope you can see it, or you can't see it. Right? So that's the autocratic set. So we can say of this that the function of a peptide, so this could be a little protein, could be a little RNA molecule. The function of the peptide is catalyzing the reaction forming the next peptide or RNA. The function of this guy is to catalyze that reaction, even though this guy, the little RNA molecule, is maybe wiggling in the petri plate and sticking the bottle and jiggling water. That's not the function of the peptide. So we define the word function. You need the word function to get where I want to go. And you cannot describe that from physics. You have to have the notion of this as a collectively autocratic set that gets to exist in the non-organic universe, and they're real. I'll show you again. Gonanoshkinandi has one with Ben Gurion, and it gets to exist. It reproduces in a petri plate. And by the way, this proves that proteins can be molecularly reproducing systems. You don't need a template replicating DNA or RNA. Okay. So um, I'm now going to show you pictures that I'm extremely proud of. You, you can see this picture. I'm now going to move towards this marvelous stuff that, that uh, Monteville and Mosio have done. I'm going to move towards explaining our idea, I think, spectacular, of constraint closure. So I, I, I'm kind of proud of myself. I got three quarters of the way there 20 years ago in investigations, but I didn't get there. They got it. So I want to move in that direction, but we're not there yet. I want to think about the concept of work, the physicist's concept of work. Well, what's work? Well, Classical physics says the following. You all know F is equal to mx. Whoops. F is equal. F is equal to mx. Force is equal to mass times acceleration, from which physics derive the concept of work. Here's a hockey puck, uh, and I do work on it. I accelerate the hockey puck by pushing on it, and it goes faster and faster. And the amount of work on it is the acceleration of it. There's always something funny about it. Who picked the direction in which the hockey puck gets accelerated? Hold that, because it wasn't recognized for a long time. There's an amazing book by Peter Atkins on the second law of thermodynamics, and he moves this to the next step forward. He says, you know, work is, is a thing. What? He says, and I have to translate this language, force, the work is the constrained release of energy into a few degrees of freedom. Well, that's a sort of balmy book. Let's try to make sense of it. So um, here's Cam. Cam disappeared. So here's, you can tell it's a Cam because I wrote the Cam here. And it sort of looks like a Cam. And this is a cannonball. It looks like one. And what happens is the powder explodes. That's called an exergonic reaction. It's a release of free energy. The exploding gas pushes the cannonball, it fires the cannonball out of the hole. Well, suppose for a moment the cannon weren't there, and the cannonball was lying on top of a bunch 
it wouldn't get propelled anywhere, right? If it's in the can, the can constrains the explosion, and the exploding gases uh, does work on the cannonball, and that work comes up as best. It's an interdiet process from the point of view of the cannonball. Work is done on the cannonball. Energy is released into a few degrees of freedom. Degrees of freedom just mean possibles. Then the possible wind goes down up the cannon. And the result is the cannon blows up. It hits the ground. It makes a hole. You can tell it's a hole. In the arrow cups. And it makes hot dirt, which you can tell it's like hot dirt. So this is non-propagating work. I thought this was an enormous advance on my culture, non-propagating work. Now I'm going to show you propagating work. Oh, before I go, I'm going to show you this. So I'm going to introduce some formalism that, that Monteville and Maceo use. Um, and it's right here. So I want to think here is the exploding, here is the exploding stuff in the cannon. Here's the cannon. The cannon is the constraint on the release of energy. That's the cannon. And the cannon is the constraint on the release of energy. So there is the cannonball sitting in the cannon. The power explodes. And I'm going to represent the non-equilibrium process. This is just a, a non-equilibrium spontaneous process. The exploding power. And that's this process. This arrow means a non-equilibrium process. And I'm going to represent by a blue line that CI can is a constraint on that boost of energy. I hope you all get this. It's abstract. That's the cannon. That's the cannonball. The, the powder explodes and it shoves the cannonball. It's a non-equilibrium constraint process. Fires the cannonball and Work is done on the cannonball in this intergotic process. So this is the formalism that, that uh, Mateo and, and uh, Lyle introduces to. But I've added something about 20 years ago. There's the, there's the cannon, there's the cannonball, and the powder does work on the cannonball. I understand that. But I understand that the cannon is a constraint or for a physicist a boundary condition on the release of energy. But then I ask myself, since the Big Bang, where did the cannon come from? What the physicists do, they're physicists in the room, is they put in fixed and moving boundary condition and they solve for the work done on the cannonball and the power slot. Where did the cannon come from? Well, not being very bright, I realized it took work to make a cannon. Yes? It took work to make a cannon. It took work to make a cannonball. And it took work to put the cannonball inside the cannon. Or do a cylinder and a piston and a working gas at the head of the cylinder. The working gas expands. It does work to push the piston up the cylinder. But where did the cylinder and the piston come? It took work. So I got to the following. No constraints, says Ivan, no work. Typically, not always, no work, no constraints. What's going on? The physicists don't tell you that. It's not in the physics book. It doesn't always take work to make constraints. Lava, when heated somehow, can harden into some shape. Granted that the rocks are heated, falling to a low energy state like, like obsidian did not take work. Obsidian could work as a constraint once it's there. It often takes work to build constraints, which is a more accurate way of saying it. So to put it too strongly, no constraints, no work, no constraints, no constraints. Let me call that the work constraint cycle. And I got that far in investigations. Uh, so, so um, I'm also very proud of this. You can see why I believe. Um, just in case you can't figure it out, that's still the same cannon. And that's the cannon and the cannonball. 
And I'm going to describe what I'll call propagating work. And here it is. Uh, I'm going to fire off the same cannon, but now I've dug a well, and I put a paddle wheel over it, and I put a bucket down in the well, and I tied a rope up to the paddle wheel. Now the cannonball fired out of the cannon hits, the cannonball hits the paddle and it spin. When it spins, it winds up the rope, the bucket comes up, it spills over the can, over the axle, pours water into a funnel, comes down the tube, opens the flat valve, and waters my bee field. Many years ago, the Milagro Bee Field Wars was a wonderfully funny story about bees and bee fields in northern New Mexico. So this was done some years ago. Well, what's going on? There's the constrained release of energy all over the place. This is the constrained release of energy. The power exploding does work on the cannonball. The cannonball hitting the paddle makes the paddle will spin. The constraint is the axle. Otherwise, no work gets done on the paddle. Very good, it could knock it around the ground. The paddle wheel spinning winds up the rope. That's the constrained release of energy. Winds up the rope, which is a non-spontaneous process, which tips over the axle and pours spontaneously down the bump, comes down and does work on the flat belt, and flows out in the right detail. It's a very sophisticated system. So, uh, OK. So, this is propagating work. Why? A lot of macroscopic things happen in the world. They did. Your car is the same thing. The gas explodes. Lots of things happen. The vehicles turn. So that's propagating work too. Now, let me use the framework that we have before to show this is propagating work and what I'll call Mel and Matteo's formalism. Uh, so here's the powder firing and firing out the cannonball, and the constraint is the cannon on the release of energy. Here's the, 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 <clears throat> here's the cannonball hitting the paddle wheel, rotating it, and therefore winding up the rope. That's the constraint release of energy, and that's propagating work. So in the little formulas of here, these are non-equilibrium processes. These are constraints on the release of energy. Work is done at each step, and the result is that a bunch of propagating work gets done. OK. But no new constraints have been constructed. This is propagating work that propagating work. Um, about two minutes from now, I'm going to tell you, Mael and Mateo, the brilliant idea. So far, nobody says, yay, that's just great. So please, when I get to that point, they need a job. Would you please say, yay? Okay. Uh, I think it's magnificent. But it's a little abstract. So now I'm going to do propagating work, but it's good, good constructive constraint. So I got as far years ago as the following. When the water pours out um, here, it could be the case that it falls on the ground, goes down the hill, and cuts a groove in the hill. And I don't need the tube anymore. I can just let the water flow down the, 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 the belly that the water is cut. Work has been done to cut the belly. So work has been done to, to build a constraint on where the water will flow. That's perfectly possible. We're just not used to thinking about this. That's why it's so strange, but it happens all the time. OK, now, um, so here's the same thing, except here's the constraint on the release of energy. That's the cannon. That's the paddle wheel. But now water flows down the hill, and it cuts 
because the groove or a hitch on the hillside that I need feel, and it can be used rather than the field. Work can be done to construct something that's constrained. We're just not used to thinking about it. Okay, now here's a mile and uh, and and Mateo's great idea. Could you be to say yes? Okay. So here's so the idea is <laughs> um, there's some first constraint. I won't tell you what it is. All the recent energy. So it, it could be it could be the can. This could be the paddle wheel, and so on. That's a non-equilibrium process. This first is a constraint. I meant to draw an arrow down here. Work is done here. Work is done here. Work is done here. And the trick that they got there is to say that this last thing, CI, is the first constraint. This is their constraint. And this is where I would like you to say, yay, nobody ever does. <laughs> so, so, but please say, yay. Well, I told you I would write about you. So, so we've done something that's astonishing. It just we can't see it yet. So let me try to say it. I've got to figure out what to draw it. What this is, is a machine. It's literally a machine that does a work cycle, like a thermodynamic work cycle, to build and assemble its own working parts. It literally does work to build itself. Your car doesn't do that. Reproducing cells do precisely this. That's what my have found. A cell does work to build itself. And it's doing something that is beyond standard physics. You see the constraints on the race of energy, the, the, the paddle wheel and the, and, the, and the can, are what physicists call boundary conditions. Well, let's stop for a moment. Uh, Newton tells us, as you all know, three laws of motion, universal gravitation, immense differential integral calculus, and he then says, look, you want to know what happens to the billiard balls on the billiard table? Specify the boundary conditions, the billiard table. He doesn't tell you where the boundary conditions come from. Then he says, specify the initial conditions of position and momentum. Classical physics doesn't tell you where the initial conditions come from. Then says Newton, please integrate my equations of motion, and you'll get the entailed trajectories of the billiard balls on the table. Classical physics doesn't tell you where the boundary conditions come from. Living organisms do something that isn't stated in physics. Living organisms build their own boundary conditions. Cells build their own boundary conditions on the release of energy in non-equilibrium processes that does work to make the same set of boundary conditions. And we're all sitting here saying, what? They do. Okay, so what I need, that I haven't figured out how to do yet, is a picture of a Rube Goldberg. You all know Rube Who doesn't know? Anybody not know Rube Goldberg? Oh, Rube Goldberg was this, this really funny cartoonist years ago who always had things like little birds twittering and they would drop the water on the ground and the world would also close an electronic circuit and go over the brain. So it looked Rube Goldberg's fun. Either an Escher kind of painting or a Rube Goldberg painting that shows a system that constructs itself. Your cells do. And I don't know how to make this to be about a moment, but it's part one of talk. Okay. So life so life I think I think they've gotten to a part of what life is. They they rightly call their paper a theory of biological organization. They're right. We've got here something that we have not had, and Monteville and Mosse have done it. 
Life is fundamentally a new medium of non-equilibrium process. It's like a chemical reaction. And constraints on the recent energy in that process into a few degrees of freedom, that thus is thermodynamic work. But studying the work done in one such non-equilibrium process as its energy is released can construct constraints on the release of energy in a further non-equilibrium process. In reproducing systems such as cells, a closure is achieved, linking such non-equilibrium process and constraint construction into an organization that closes on itself, so the non-equilibrium work done by the constraint release of energy constructs the same constraints in the thermodynamic work cycle. That's kind of a mouthful. That's what happens. I don't know how to say it more briefly yet. Such a system is a machine that does a work cycle that constructs and assembles its own parts. I'm mumbling trying to find a way of saying this where you will say, wow. <laughs> I see the wow, and I just think I can't say it. Uh, and then done it. So it's a new but fundamental idea. It's not matter alone, it's not energy alone, it's not free energy alone, it's not boundary conditions alone, but a new union of these. Again, in Newtonian physics, boundary conditions are essential, but they're outside Newton's laws of motion. We don't know where the boundary conditions come from. Living systems, due to constraint closure, literally do work cycles to construct their own specific boundary conditions. Constraints on the recent energy are boundary conditions. Okay. So I'm trying to say it again. Non-equilibrium systems achieving constraint closure construct themselves. A tree constructs itself and builds itself. It's not writing poems, it's building itself. Cells do work cycles to construct approximate second copies of themselves when they reproduce. Trees do work cycles to construct themselves as physical objects when they grow from seeds. These are examples of propagating work and organization of process. The evolving Barrett Weiser is this co-constructing propagation, subject to heritable variation and natural selection, plus drift and frozen accidents. This is how the evolving Barrett Weiser physically builds itself. What's out the window built itself, well, or the window, built itself over 3.7 billion years. It's out the window. It all became. Somehow what I'm talking about is as big as physics. That's true for any biosphere. There are on the order of 10 to the 11 uh, suns that may have solar systems around them. Therefore, there's maybe on the order of 10 to the 11 biospheres or more. Biospheres are kind of living in one. We don't know how to describe or understand what's happening right in front of us. And that's what we're talking about. So now, now the next step. Uh, Mateo and, and Mayo tell us what a system of constraint closure is. They don't tell us how in the world they come to exist. How do they ever happen? That's the problem of the origin of life. So I'm now going to spend some time talking about this. So we want to get to the emergence of constraint closure. That is the problem of the origin of life. So this is something that a lot of people have thought about for a long time, including me and others in this room. Uh, so I want to talk about the spontaneous, or the theory of the spontaneous emergence of collectively, collectively autocratic sets of peptides, or RNA systems. They're performing of work cycles and achieving constraint. I want to tell you how what M and M, if I can say it for short, Nyla and Mateo have talked about, comes into existence. So, um, let me not do that. So, I'm going to take this back a step. In 1956, Erdős and Lenier did work on what are called random graphs.
crafts. It's just lovely stuff. And here it is. I've got a bunch of buttons. Uh, formally, a graph is a bunch of buttons connected by a bunch of threads, or dots connected by lines, or dots connected by edges, or nodes connected by edges. So here I've got 20 nodes, and I randomly pick pairs of nodes, and I connect them by lines. Let me change these into buttons connected by red threads. But you can see what happens. And they ask the question, if I just pick random pairs of buttons and connect them with random threads, what happens? So imagine that these are threads, and every now and then pick up a button, like pick up that button, and ask how many buttons you pick up with it. Well, one. Pick up this button, you'll pick up three. The set of buttons you pick up is called a component in a graph. This is components in a random graph. And you can see what happens. Magic. When the number of edges is equal to half the number of nodes, the number of ends, ends of threads is equal to the number of buttons. And the thing goes through a phase transition, literally a phase transition, where all of a sudden the buttons get connected into a giant component. You can see it by eye. There are isolated buttons in a few pairs and maybe a few triples, and all of a sudden you get big clusters, and then everybody gets joined up. Can you see it? That's called the phase transition in a random graph from disconnected to connected. And if you have a very large number of buttons and a very large number of threads, it's a sudden phase transition, the first order of phase transition. And it creates what's called a giant component, uh, a giant cluster. I'm going to use the same ideas to think about how you can get molecular reproduction. So this is something I invented some years ago, um, and a bunch of people worked on it. So uh, let's take our time. I'm going to model, you've already seen it, I'm going to model a protein as a linear string of two kinds of amino acids, alanine and glycine. So this is the, called the binary polymer model, and I don't care if it's proteins or RNA or anything else. They're binary strings. I allow a binary string to split apart to two substrings, as you've already seen that's two glue together and come back together. And I want to talk about the ratio of the reactions to the number of molecules as the length of the long polymer degree. So I can have a polymer like 10 or 20 or 30 or 40. And you get some arithmetic and something interesting happens. The number of reactions among things goes up faster than the number of things. So the ratio of reactions to things is grows rapidly. So there's one other piece of this sort of theory. Suppose you have a pot full of proteins or RNA or anything else, what's the chance that a randomly chosen protein catalyzes a randomly chosen reaction? Got the question? Let me model that simply by saying there's a fixed probability of 1 in 100,000 that this molecule catalyzes that reaction. We can actually know this, and in fact, it led to a whole area called combinatorial chemistry. Uh, some of us got involved. We realized that you're doing random DNA, making random RNA, making random proteins, and actually ask, what's the chance that a random polypeptide catalyzes a random reaction? We still don't know. We do know that the chance that a random peptide binds to something is about one in a million. Nobody knew that when I started this book. That's not knowable. Put in some parameters along these lines, and it's sort of easy to see that if the number of reactions is going up faster than the number of molecules, and molecules have probability of catalyzing a reaction, let me define a catalyzed reaction subgraph. Imagine how I want to do this. So once again, this is going to make what I call a uh, uh, bipartite hypergraph. 
So imagine, all you have to do is imagine the following. Um, here's the binary strings. They're glued together and falling apart. The ligation reactions this way, cleavage reactions, and all of those get to catalyze reactions. If you catalyze more and more reactions, I haven't drawn this, but uh, I'm just asking you to picture this. If this molecule catalyzes this reaction, color these lines red. For every catalyzed reaction, color the reaction lines red. If you catalyze more and more reactions, more and more of these lines will be colored red. Intuitively, if enough of those black lines become red, the red lines will form a big connected cluster, just like in the air ducts when they ran on the ground, and everything will go connected. That's what happens. And when that happens, there's a spontaneous formation of a collective of catalytic set. That's how this binary polymer model works. It's a set of theorems now. Uh, it's been simulated for 20 years, and it works on paper. I'll tell you the experiments that are confirming it in a moment. So that may be, and I'm going to tell you that I think that it is, the way that we can get constraint closure to happen in a test tube or a pond. And it's obviously about the origin of life. But. So I'm going to tell you some of the experimental work that's been done. I already told you, going to Ashkenazi, well, it's, it's worth going back. Uh, the first creation of, of a collective of the autocratic set was in 1994. Uh, uh, Gunter von Kamarowski made a little six-nucleotide string that bound to three primers, DNA primers, and then glued them together to make a copy of the original one. He made the first self-reproducing molecule. Then he made a collectively autocatalytic set where uh, a DNA hexamer ligated the fragments together to make a second DNA hexamer, and the second one made the first one to make a collectively autocatalytic set of DNA molecules. And I, I met him years ago and said, you owe me a bottle of champagne, because I, I didn't. Please, I'll, I'll give a bottle of champagne, then you know who does it. And we did it. Um, Gunn worked with a guy named uh, uh, Reza Gadiri scripts. Reza made the first experiments in 1995, showing that a peptide could reproduce itself. He took a protein that's called a coiled coil, that's a zinc finger protein, that makes an alpha helix that folds back on itself. 32 amino acids long. He reasoned that, since it folded back on itself, if you took a 17 fragment and a 15 fragment of the same protein, they would make alpha helices, and the 30 tumor would line up the two smaller proteins and ligate them together to make a peptide bond, and he did it, and he did it. So he was the first one to show that proteins can be reproducing molecules. Whatever else you take away from this, you do not name DNA and RNA peptide replication. You get molecular reproduction. That kind of just false. It doesn't follow that I started that way, but the belief among many that that's necessary is wrong. Okay, so Gunnett, then working in Grace's lab, made this set where there's nine peptides that we'll talk about in more detail, uh, in which the nine peptides is collectively autocatalytic. Uh, meanwhile, in, 19, in 2012, um, So Mass Lehman in, in Portland State has taken evolved RNA molecules called ribozymes. He's taken maybe 20 ribozymes. He's cut each in half, separating the catalytic site from the recognition site. He's put them in a pot with nothing but magnesium and asked what happens. They spontaneously form like the other kind of sets of ribozymes that make one another. 
and that's well worked out, and it's collected well and found it set. Right now, my office is trying to do with libraries of random RNA molecules. I pray that it succeeds. We'll know pretty soon. Meanwhile, Ben um, uh, Hornick and uh, Mike Steele, who I just saw in the museum, have looked at E. coli metabolism. It's collectively autokinetic. Strauss-Marie has looked at the same thing. Real cells are collectively autokinetic. And in fact, current cells are replicating systems that are collectively autokinetic. Next, I want to show you that Gilman's set of nine peptides, this is 4C, uh, it's an autokinetic system. And we have to say it slowly. It actually does MNM's constraint torture. So I have to say it so we can all understand it. So the nine peptides are linked catalytically. Each catalog, each peptide catalyzes the reaction, forming a second copy of the next peptide. The way it happens literally is that peptide one joins two subfragments of peptide two, holds peptide one holds peptides to two peptide fragments of two next to one another, therefore acts as a catalyst. Those two ligate together. That's doing work because a new peptide bond is formed. So work was done. This is a non this is a spontaneous reaction that keeps feeding in the small peptides. It's displaced from equilibrium. Peptide one is precisely a constraint on the release of energy by which peptide two is formed, and work is done. Peptide 2 does the same for 3, 3 does the same for 4, 8 does the same for 9, and 9 does the same for 1. Golden set already does what Mild and Mateo said. It is a self-reproducing system, but harnesses a set of nine different non-equilibrium processes, such that each constructs a peptide that is a constraint on the release of, of, of energy in the next reaction, and they all literally build one another. Gonan said it does a thermodynamic work cycle. So it would be nice to have the pretty picture that I thought to draw you. It exists in Gonan's test bit and then Gurgaon. Is it possible? Yeah, we got one. Okay. 4C is something I'm only going to talk about here. Suppose that in the origin life, somehow we've got this collectively autocatalyte separately. It doesn't have a connected metabolism. Your metabolism has thousands of organic molecules in it, and virtually every reaction is catalyzed. So I want to point at, I think, the way we're approaching this, and it's the same phase transition. Uh, just picture lots of dots and lots of circles. The circles are molecules and the dots are reactions. Put a bunch of lines between them, meaning reactions. Color reactions red if they're catalyzed. And now throw a bunch of candidate catalysts to the system from the outside. They could be more from antibodies. If enough reactions are catalyzed, you'll get the spontaneous formation of a connected catalyzed reaction system. I think that we can try to make some metabolism emerge spontaneously that way. I think it's a doable experiment, and that's all I'm going to say about it. But um, we're on our way to a protocell at that point. I think I'm not going to be able to talk about 4D. It's beautiful work that David Deemer and Bruce Stainer have done. Um, and if we have time, I'll come back and tell you about it. They've cracked the problem of trying to make the emergence of a protocell uh, where there's an evolution and they can achieve an evolution without having to achieve regular reproduction to achieve it. Um, I'm going to finish in about 10 minutes. So, 
Suppose we've got, we've now gotten, I need to develop, I need one more sentence. Suppose that we can, in the lab, create a connected metabolism whose catalyst is driven by an autocratic set. The molecules in the autocratic set are the catalysts to drive the connected metabolism. And we can imagine that that metabolism does something nice like make lipids. And the lipids help make, do you all know what a liposome is? I can tell you what a liposome is. If you take cholesterol and put it in water, uh, it forms a bilipid layer. And the bilipid layer forms a hollow vesicle called a liposome. It's a lovely little thing. But you take cholesterol and put it in water, you just get liposomes. So a lot of people, including me, like the idea that photocells are something like liposomes, which is a bilipid layer, which is like membrane in a cell. Therefore, it's pretty plausible to imagine that early life formed compartments that were formed out of something like liposome that house inside of them a reproducing system that makes the lipids themselves allow the liposome to go be made. Probably we're not that far away from it. And in fact, uh, Roberta Serra has proven that if you have a budding liposome, which exists, you take liposomes and you put it in a medium with cholesterol, they grow and driven dynamically, they bud, sort of like a soap bubble does, then you can have something that divides and has in it a self-reproducing molecular system and they synchronize their conditions. If all that's right, we're not very far from making photocells. So imagine we've got photocells, where the metabolism is making the lipids that are needed to make liposomes. So I think we can do this in the next 40 years. I do think that we can do it in the next 40 years. And if so, we'll have made it. Um, roughly speaking, this is a transition from inanimate to animate world. I put in here um, the following. Um, so in investigation, I try to talk about what, what, where does agency come from? We think we're agents and we can act in the world. One way of thinking about agency is that a molecular autonomous agent is a system that can reproduce itself and that does a thermodynamic work cycle. Gonorostronosity already has one. It reproduces itself and it does a work cycle. We're not infinitely far from it. And then when we'd like to have something that could move, well, some of you may know about salt gel transformations. That's how we invite motion happens. Part of the cytoplasm makes a gel, sorry, it becomes salt and it moves out in a particular direction. And that's making a pseudomon. Maybe we can make systems that can reproduce and crawl. We do, so it must be possible. At that point, we're not very far from self-moving, and it's this transition that, that is now sort of legitimate transition from the inanimate to the animate world. Now I want to talk in, in, the, in the last little while about the evolution of this animate world. We have now in our imagination photocells and they're evolving. That's going to require Darwinian heritable variation, natural selection. The physical basis of these are wider than DNA and a code of protein synthesis, which couldn't in the present have an issue. Collectively autocratic sets achieving constraint closures, so constructing themselves, can evolve without a genome. And if contained in systems that divide, such as budding lipids, they can evolve as protocells to some extent. We're not far from it. So I want to tell you the surprising true story of Patrick the First. Um, I had fun writing this. It's a children's story. Uh, maybe I'm going to close by telling you the story. Um, well, it, this happens about 3.6 billion years ago 
And I moved out of this children's store, and I'll glad to send it to you. And uh, McKay has it, and Ian has it. So Patrick and, and Rupert and Sly and Gus are photocells in the little lagoon 3.6 billion years ago. And here's how the lagoon works. It's, it's full of, well, they are, you know, in the United States, we talk about Gen Xers. They're people who were born around, they're millennials. So there's a bunch of Gen Xer protocells. They're typical protocells. They're floating around uh, in the lagoon. And there's stuff. That they eat stuff that's much smaller than they are. And the stuff is flowing very slowly back and forth in the lagoon. And the protocells are floating at the same speed as the stuff. Well, do you know what happens to Patrick one day? He, he feels a bump in his tummy. And a 13 amino acid long peptide sticks out of his tummy. And it sticks to a huge rock. Well, it's not a very big rock because Patrick's pretty small. And Patrick's very upset. And he says, oh, woe is me. I'm stuck to the rock. What, what, what am I going to do? And he says, if only I had a mom, I could write home to her. I don't even have a mom. Says, what am I going to do to get free and float again in the lagoon? Oh, woe is me. And then he looks around, and he's stuck to the rock. And guess what? Stuff is flowing past him. Swish, swish much faster than if you were floating free in the lagoon. And he gobbles up the stuff. And by getting more stuff, he divides sooner than he would have. And now there's two patterns. They're stuck with the rock, too. And they say, oh, well, but they're dividing faster. Patrick has become the first sessile feeder in the universe, the sessile filter feeder. Well, that's really what happened, more or less. There's a lot of sessile feeders. I don't like that. Um, so there's floating the lagoon, and he got stuck. Well, there's something going on. What's the opportunity for Patrick? Um, you can see it because I thought I moved it. It's the rock. The rock is Patrick's opportunity, given that there's slowly flowing stuff. But then you start thinking about it and say, wait a minute, rocks don't have opportunities. How come Patrick has an opportunity? Patrick is a for whom there can be an opportunity. You can't have an opportunity unless there's a for whom there's an opportunity. Funny thing to think about, but it's true. Why is Patrick a for whom? And the answer is because Patrick is a protocell, and he can evolve by heritable variation and natural selection, and thereby Patrick and his progeny seize the opportunity. <coughs> so that's, that's Patrick. I'm going to just get it up as far as Rupert. Um, gosh, I haven't written down after Rupert. Well, Rupert has already gotten to the point that he can float in the lagoon, and then he happens to run into another photocell. He can sort of grab onto the other photocell, poke a hole in it, and suck their inside out. And he thinks that's great. Problem is, he doesn't run into very many other photocells, because they're all floating at the same speed, so he mostly eats stuff. But when he can get another photocell, this is great. Well, one day he floats into the now large Patrick patch. There's a bunch of Patricks. They're all attached to rocks in the area. And, and Rupert bumps into a Patrick. And he pokes a hole in Patrick the 4743rd and sucks his inside out. And Patrick goes, ah! And Rupert's like, cool. Well, Rupert is now in the Patrick patch. And he gets really good at staying in the Patrick patch and eating, eating Patricks. Rupert has become Rupert Raptor Protocell. 
He is the very first predator in the universe. And he really is the very first predator in the universe. So what is Rupert's opportunity? Patrick's opportunity was the rock and slowly flowing stuff. Rupert's opportunity has Patrick in it. Patrick has created by existing a niche for Rupert to come into existence, yes? This isn't in our theory, everyone. It's not. Species, when they come into existence, create niches for other things to come into existence. Then Sly comes along, I won't tell you about Sly. He doesn't know that his name is Majora, but he, he, he's perfect. And then Gus comes a little bigger. What's happening here is, uh, with Rupert, Patrick, Sly, and Gus, the coming into existence of each is context-dependent upon the others coming into existence. So Patrick's opportunity is just the rock and the slowly moving stuff. Rupert's opportunity includes Patrick. Then it turns out that Sly's opportunity includes Patrick and Rupert. And the same thing is true of the evolving economy. The, the example of Google, Google could not come into existence without the prior existence of the web, which could not have come into existence without the prior existence of the Turing machine and computers and and uh, and and and, uh, and word processing and file exchange and the creation of the web, which enabled but did not cause the coming into existence of Google and eBay. We don't have it in our theories. It's true. It's right in front of us. And this means the following: that in the becoming of the biosphere, uh, I can tell you this. just briefly. Uh, I now want to tell you that you cannot restate the coming into existence of Patrick. You're very fond of him. How would you write down equations for the mathematicians and physicists? How would you write down an equation for which you could deduce the coming into existence of Patrick or Rupert? I think you cannot. After the fact, you can say, look what happened. And fundamentally, you're doing history and paleontology. So I guess I'm going to close by trying to tell you um, the screwdriver argument. Um, so this is something that I did with Giuseppe Longo and my own in 2011. And this is going to sound very strange, but let me try it on you. So here we are in Sydney, and I hand, uh, I hand one of you uh, a screwdriver. Does anybody want to be it? Would you be it? Just say yes. Here's a screwdriver. It's okay, a real one. Please tell me all the uses of the screwdriver here in Sydney. What? To deal with something? Deal with something? Yeah. Okay. Give me You can screw and screw, right? Yeah. I'm not taking that. But can you feel your mind going a little blank? Can you all feel your mind? I will stop taking that. Can you all feel your minds going a little blank? What do you mean, tell me, all this is a screw? Just can you feel it? Let, let's, let, I'll, I'll take you off of it. So I'm going to tell you some uses of a screwdriver. You can screw and screw. Can you open a can of paint? Yeah. Can you scrape putty off the window? Yeah. Can you wedge a door closed? Can you wedge a door open? Can you stab somebody? Can you, can you, can you pick your nose? So careful. Yeah. Can you tie it to a stick and spear a fish? Yeah. Can you rent the spear to a local to take 5% of the cash? Yeah. I particularly like this. My first wife was a painter. I'm going to lean the screwdriver against the wall, put a piece of plywood over, put this is what paintings underneath it to keep the rain off of it. That's the dandies of a screwdriver, right? So I'm now 
going to ask you a question. Uh, you're going to say no, so be quiet. <laughs> um, do you think that the number of uses of a screwdriver is indefinite? I'm using a very loaded word. Is it indefinite? Not infinite. Is it indefinite? Yeah, I don't kind of think it's indefinite. Okay. Now the next statement is, I'm going to remind you of, of, of four kinds of scales. One is a nominal scale. It's just the names of things. The next is an ordering relationship. X is greater than Y, and Y is greater than Z. It's transient. X is greater than Z. The third is an integral scale, like a, a centigrade scale. From 1 to 2 is from 2 to 3 on centigrade. But 0 doesn't mean anything. It's an integral scale. And a meter is a ratio scale. 2 meters is twice 1 meter. What kind of a scale is the use of screwdrivers? It's just a nominal scale. There's no ordering relationship among opening a can of paint and scratching your mouth. They're just different uses. That entails the following. Okay. There's no rule-following procedure that can deduce all the uses of the screwdriver or deduce the next use of the screwdriver. It's not algorithmic. We do it all the time. And evolution does it all the time. I, I want to get us there by showing you kind of the last thing I'll say, which is following to all that I'm going to say. You see, all that has to happen in evolution is that some evolving bacteria in environment have a molecular screwdriver that finds a use in that environment that enhances the fitness of the bacteria. And if heritability and natural selection happens, that screwdriver will have found a new use or function, and that new function will have come to exist in the universe. But we couldn't say it ahead of time. Afterwards, we can say, oh, that use. That's what's happening with Patrick. His, his pet bag's sticking out of his tummy got stuck to a rock. That's a new use of a rock. And there he is getting more food, and now he's obsessed out here. You can't reduce it ahead of time. So I'm trying, and there's so much to be said here, and I can't say it, but let me close with this. Once there's reproducing systems that can evolve by heritable variations, and they have functions if we allow functional language, what does get to exist in the non-ergotic universe are sets of functions which together have the property that they confer the capacity to get on with getting on to organisms. You have a heart because your heart pumps blood, and that's part of why you're here. But we can't say ahead of time what the functions will be that come to exist, by virtue of which hearts come to exist in the universe. It follows that we can't reduce biology, I mean just biology to physics, although obviously not depends upon physics. There's this amazing context dependence in which life as it becomes creates the niches and the opportunities for more life to come to exist. We can't deduce it. We can't write down equations for it. It, frankly, pisses us off as scientists. We want to write down equations for it, and we can't. Too bad. There's something vast in front of us. This is the becoming of life. It's trees growing and creating niches for clinging vines to go around them in evolution. Who knew that? For worms to find ways to crawl inside of them and you know, make a living. The biosphere blossoms forth. I guess I will close with a wonderful statement by Eric Pius 2,700 years ago. He said, the world bubbles forth. The biosphere does bubble forth. We will Thank you.